Welcome to DexGuru Talk Show. DexGuru is your defined trading terminal. Charting, on-chain analytics, trading, the most effective for the road and with zero weeks API. At DexGuru Talk Show, we talk about people and projects in DeFi, Web3, and crypto. My name is Roman, and I am the host. We are conducting a series of interviews with people who build the future of decentralized finance. We are all human beings. We believe that people follow people when they make trading and investing decisions. Therefore, we focus on the person, not current news. And today, we want to focus on our incredible guest, Jonathan Fisby, Community Ambassador from FIDAO. Without further ado, let's begin. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Jonathan. Excited Thank to have you here. Thank you very much for the nice thing to do. For starters, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself to the listeners and give a bit of a background about yourself. Yes, of course. So, as you mentioned, my name is Jonathan Feesby. I've been working with PyDAO for about six months now. And my background is in business development and essentially scaling projects. That's my specialty. Because one thing that you run into in a space like DeFi is that it's not that there's a lack of good ideas. The problem is actually that there's good ideas floating all around the place all the time. There's there's so many good ideas that you can't entirely wrap your head around it. What, se- what separates projects that fail from projects that succeed in the long term is how these projects are marketed, how they're, how they're made to catch on. And so that's what I'm trying to do with PyDAO, because we have a fantastic set of ideas, a fantastic set of axioms that the company has built upon. The project, uh, the problem with the project is getting the project, the problem with any project in DeFi is taking it from an idea to an established financial institution. And that's what I'm trying to do with PyDAO here. Our listeners would love to hear a bit of how you got into DeFi initially. What attracted you to this industry? What were you up to before? Okay, yes, sure. So when I was at university, I started really getting involved in finance, despite that not actually being what I was studying at university. Um, So yes, stock market and then later derivatives. I was super interested in that, researching that by myself for about a year. And there was kind of murmurs people will kind of mention crypto and everyone will go Ooh, you know you know those crazy people over there doing something crazy so I'd, I'd encountered that quite a lot people go crazy you know crypto you know oh, don't touch that um i'd heard that so many times that in the end i my interest was piqued i had to kind of research it into myself research into it myself um i initially came across crypto through the memes primarily um but my first proper introduction to the technicalities of cryptocurrency was watching uh the mit series uh, blockchain and technology by gary gensler it's available for free on youtube i definitely recommend that um he explains quite lucidly the technology for the technology that bitcoin is built upon and its impact and, ha- and why it's revolutionary and when i actually understood the technology behind bitcoin and what it actually means, devoid, devoid from all the hype and all the people who go crazy over it, the actual technology and the actual revolution that was made in coding Bitcoin, that really drew me in. That was like a quite a pivotal moment in my life. And I thought, okay, this is this is really something. You, you have to be involved in this. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, so from learning about Bitcoin, being a, Bitcoin maximalist, I then ventured out further into learning about Ethereum and smart contracts, 
and from there found out about the world of DeFi. And I remember, I remember first encountering DeFi and I was just thinking, what the hell is this? You know, there's so much information going on here. Um, I kind of had to go through a, a crash course of just teaching yourself every, all the intangibles about DeFi, everything about it. And it, it was just so interesting. I thought, okay, this, this has to be something that I work on full time. This has to be something that I dedicate all my time to. This is where, you know, the interesting things are happening. This is where the future of finance is going to be. So that, that happens. I, I first got involved in crypto. I was aware of Bitcoin from maybe 2012, but only kind of tangentially. And then my interest was peaked in, say, uh, 2018, 2019. And then I kind of fell down the rabbit hole fully uh, about 2020. And so I've been full time since then. Great. And what was your aha moment in transition to DeFi? What was the point of no return? Point of no return, that's a good question. Um, probably just looking through AP, APYs, APRs and things, and I was just thinking, wow, these numbers, are, if, if you say these numbers, the numbers that people are generating here to people in traditional finance, people who slave away for 2 to 3% a year, that it's just incomparable. You know, these are different leagues in the financial game. Like, this this is not the same game at all. Um, so, so that's what kind of drew me in and then... And, and then the thing that made me say, okay, I, I have to work on this, was the mobility that the code offers. You can just do so, 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 so much more in DeFi. There's, it's so much more malleable in that sense. I thought, okay, this is this is really this is groundbreaking technology. You know, I have to be a part of this. What was DeFi like when you started compared to now? What changed in sentiment? Uh, in sentiment, I mean, when I was first kind of getting involved, it seemed more, it seemed less institutionalized. I think now, like, DAOs are really growing to be, like, very big, kind of, almost, like, quasi-institutions. Um, at the start in DeFi, it was obviously just kind of, you kind of got the sense it was just uh, coders in their bedrooms, you know, or not in their bedrooms, but you get the idea, um, just working on these things for fun. And now, there's, it's more... <laughs> I hesitate to use the word centralized, but there's, you know, there's, there's big players now. When you think of DeFi, you think of, you know, there's, there's big players there. You think of, you know, SushiSwap, Uniswap, and in the future, people will think of Pardal. So it's not centralization exactly, but points of reference for DeFi. You know, you know who the big players are now, and that wasn't necessarily the case before. Can you please explain us, like we are five or maybe ten, uh, PyDAO at a high level? What is it? What product does and who uses it and why? Okay, yeah, so the idea for PyDAO came from, it actually came from a group of um, people who are arbitraging interest rates on Compound V1 back in that era. Um, from there, a Telegram group was formed and that got, you know, that group was thinking, okay, th this space is kind of, it's nebulous, it's not very well defined yet. What does this really need? What can, what, what does the market want in this situation? And the, uh, the idea that we came up with was, uh, an asset allocation DAO. Or essentially just an automated way of making money. You know, it's like, it's obvious on code. How can we put this 
financial knowledge that we have, these these systems that we have here in DeFi, how can we automate the wealth generation process? So with regards to who would use it, it's for PiDAO is predominantly for people who are aware of Bitcoin, people who are aware of Ethereum, everything like that, and they're looking to take the next step. They're looking to get involved in DeFi, they're looking to profit from it. This, you know, when you first encounter DeFi, you just think, wow, there's so much money floating around and there's these crazy numbers and everything. There's just so much going on. But the problem I had when I first got involved in DeFi was like, how the hell do you actually make money with this thing? You know, there's like, there's so much there that you just don't understand when you start up. So PiDAO is for people who are looking to get involved. It's like a one-stop shop for people who want to get involved in DeFi, you know? You might look at the roadmap as getting involved. You understand Bitcoin, you understand Ethereum, and then you understand PiDAO. PiDAO is relatively easy to understand, you know? We try to make it as simple as possible. All the kind of complicated stuff is automated through the code that's handled by our developers. So the UI is clean. You just buy, you invest in one of our products and all the code does the work for you. But yes, if it was in a sentence, it would be automated wealth generation. Um, we have a couple of ways that we do this. Um, the first one is our pies. That's kind of like our flag- flagship product. Um, and pies are split into two different forms. First is the just, just the pies, and those function as indexes. So they track macroeconomic trends um, within different sort of subsections of the crypto ecosystem uh, as a whole, which mitigates the risk of buying into one and seeing all your all your money fade away, which is Happened to me, and it's definitely happened to some of the other people on this uh, on this talk show. Um, so yes, you're mitigating that risk. You're not going to lose everything. You're betting on the industry as a whole instead of betting on one particular cryptocurrency. And the other half of our Pi products is what are called the Pi Vaults. These function similarly. Um, we have the DeFi Pi Vaults and the Play Pi Vault, which is our Metaverse Index. The difference with the Pi Vault is that the underlying assets are lent out and staked, and this provides a yield to the people who own the tokens. So not only are you mitigating the risk and gaining exposure to all these fields, you're also receiving a yield from deploying the underlying assets. So there's two two big ways of generating wealth through that. We also have... Sorry, go on. Uh, Can you please tell us more about product backstory? How did you come up with the idea? Uh, like I say, the idea was formed from that Telegram group chat. It was called EarnDAO, and there was a whole thing going on with that. But so, Web3, people like to say, oh, Web3 is so different. And that, in a lot of respects, that's actually true. But Web3 is a market like any market. So it makes a certain degree of sense that what works really well in Web2 will apply to some degree to Web3 as well. And what is the best investing? So if you look at the investors who've made the most money over long periods of time, it's Warren Buffett, it's Ray Dalio, it's people like that, people who have a sound investing thesis, people who invest on macroeconomic trends and who play it long term. That was the idea that we came up with. You know, obviously it's so risky in Web3. You have projects, there's rug pulls all over the place. There's so many traps that you can fall into. How can you navigate your way through that space and invest safely and get the maximum return for it. And the best way to invest both in Web2 
and in Web3 is through diversification. There's a quote, I can't remember who it's from, but in investing, diversification is the only free lunch. And that definitely applies to Web2, and it definitely applies to Web3 as well. So really just that thesis of, from first principles, what are you trying to do? You're trying to make money. What gets in your way? Rug pulls, everything like that, you know, risk. So how do you mitigate that diversification? What's the best way to go through with that? Indexes. That That is it. That is pied out to a T. Kind of look obvious in uh, uh, retroactively. Uh, how did you validate uh, first steps of this idea of automated wealth generation? Sorry, could you elaborate on what you mean by that? Uh, when PIDAO was established, uh, how did you validate idea of this uh, indexing uh, and automated wealth generation? Ultimately, okay, yes, I see what you're saying. Um, when you prefer to validate it, it's essentially the only difference between doing something like automated wealth generation and wealth generation that you do yourself is that You take the methods that work for individuals and instead of relying on the individuals to input that themselves, you write it down into code and allow the code to do it for you. So there's no kind of tricks that the code uses that aren't human built, you know. It's just the best methods for wealth generation that people use, codified, automated, so that all you have to do is interact with the user interface and these methods that are proven to work will run automatically. It just makes sense that, you know, that it makes sense to offload that burden. You know, there's a big kind of, the zeitgeist at the moment is definitely with efficiency. And that's just a far, far, far more way of, a far, far, far more efficient way of building wealth is to just move the energy from yourself into the code. And thankfully for us, we have a fantastic team of core developers who are very, very adept with the code. Uh, I, I'm personally not. I'm not code literate at all. But, um, yes, our core developers are fantastic investors and they're fantastic at putting their investing thesis into code. And so just it just all made sense, really. You know? Talking about developers, uh, what went into building the product? How long did it take from start to release on mainnet? Okay, so the idea started floating around in about early 2020 for PyDAO, and the first um, iteration of PyDAO was launched late 2020. So a lot of... There was a lot of kind of... There's a fleshing out process, as with everything. Um, I can't really speak to the development side as much. I don't have as much experience with it. But a lot of it was just kind of figuring out the intangibles of, okay, how do we apply this investing ethos into the code? Um, but yes, the, the launch was quite smoothly, and PyDAO's gone through a couple of iterations through that time. Um, if you look on CoinMarketCap, our governance token is called PyDAO Door V2. Um, so there's obviously been challenges as we're launching any DAO, but about six months for the initial, and then we've been constantly working on it ever since. Did you get any funding to build the initial product? Uh, primarily no. So the initial product was just code 
and then a round of investment. A lot of this was actually uh, self-funded um, from our developers, but the the liquidity push for PyDAO Door V2 um, was based on everyone who had the original governance token um, would deploy that and receive ETH in return and then get the second form of the governance token as well. So, no, this was this was largely a self-funded enterprise. We didn't go out for uh, VC rounds or anything like that. Very much on. Sorry, go on. Okay, thank you. Even one month is a long period in fast-paced crypto space. How has the crypto landscape evolved while you were building, and uh, how does it affect what decisions you've made on futures? Okay, yeah, sure. So, the crypt- like you said, the crypto landscape moves incredibly fast. Another thing is that the agility of the market. That's something that you really have to focus on, you know. Um, earlier in DeFi's lifespan, it was more... It was more typical Web2 uh, methods of building wealth. You know, you saw typical Web2 products kind of getting their Web3 counterpart, and that was all great. But as the space has evolved, people are really pushing the limits of what you can do with the code now. People are realizing that, okay, this technology is... There's, sorry, there's a lot of similarities, but these technologies are fundamentally different. Web3 technology allows for a far, far more diverse range of products. So when when you're working in a DAO, you really have to be super up to date on all of this because it's it's like if you blink, you will miss it. There's so much crazy stuff going on about now. Um, for instance, now our focus is on cross-chain and cross-chain yield aggregation. But yes, if there's one big difference, I would say, from early def- early DeFi to DeFi now, apart from the, you know, massive amount of money that's been injected into it recently. I would say it's the ability of developers to adapt and create wild and wacky new products. You know, everyone's just kind of, it's like throw everything at the wall and see what happens. And we've seen some really, really crazy inventions come out since then. Yeah. With all you explained before, there's the next questions. I'm sure listeners would like to know more about how did you handle security in the product? How safe is it? Which precautions were taken? Yeah, sure. So our smart contractor, they were audited originally about eight months ago. Hang on. One sec. Yeah, so the smart contracts are always being audited. Uh, safety is obviously a massive priority for us with regards to, to the smart contracts and everything about the platform. Um, you see star, you know, horror stories of hacks going on all the time. Um, so in order to kind of keep face as a DAO, it's very, very important that we audit them. So the wrong, our smart contracts are constantly under audit is what we're trying to say that. Uh, to ensure security because people lose, you know, DAOs can lose all of their investment just in one in one hack. So our smart contracts are constantly being audited, yes. Smart approach. Developing a product, you've been uh, in close contact with a lot of people in the crypto community. Who mm-hmm. are people or products that helped you out? Who would you like to highlight? Yeah, sure. So, 
Uh, one person we would definitely have to thank is Nick Mudge. He was a massive help when we were building our products for sure. The, the diamond standard that he created for Ethereum contracts uh, provided the infrastructure that PyVaults were built upon, so we definitely owe him some gratitude. Um, but the, and, there's, and there's hundreds of other people who've helped out, but I can't name them all here, but Nick Mudge for certain. Thank you. Seems like a really great idea, which kind of should sell itself. But let's pretend we are in the so-called red team and consider some worst possible scenarios. Mm. What difficulties in onboarding and getting access for the new users do you see in the future? Mm. The difficulty with onboarding people into a DeFi project at all is consistency. You know, there's a thousand ways that you can make money in a month, in two months, in three months, blah, 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 blah. But if you want somebody to really kind of really be involved in the project, you have to make them think long term, not not one month. But like, where is this project going to be in three years? Where is this team going to be in five years? Where is it going to be in 10 years? And that's something that we've really, really focused on. So things will come and go in the space. We want it to be so Pido will be here for the long term. You know, I think that definitely helps people. There's a, there's a difference between onboarding and keeping people onboarded, and it's the latter that we're really really focusing on. Um, it's. You, what you are you doing to keep them onboarded? Okay, yeah, sure. So people who stake our governance token door for Vido, I'll explain the governance model a little bit here. So people who stake door for Vido are compensated in proportion to the amount that they work for the DAO. So if you vote, then you are eligible to receive the remuneration from the Treasury revenue. So this means that you are financially incentivized to do what is best for the DAO. You are financially incentivized to keep up to date with it. So it's a way of just aligning all our incentives to make sure the Pi DAO functions best into the future. Because what better way of influencing people do you have than providing them with a financial incentive, you know? Uh, talking about how people make money, uh, how do you make money? What's your business model? Yeah, of course. So we adopt a more traditional way of making money from indexes. Uh, the traditional um, kind of hedge fund model is 2 and 20. We don't do that. We do our... Streaming fees re, re, our, our streaming fees range from zero percent to zero point seven percent, and our swap fees of one percent does both bring re, revenue into the treasury. But also, uh, we can afford to keep these rates so low because our treasury is actually mobilized. Um, so that means the assets in our treasury are deployed into collateral and lending and staking and all of these things so the treasury is actually far far but looking at the relative size of our DAO compared to, our, to compared to other DAOs um, the PIDAO treasury is far 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 more profitable far more active and then 60% of treasury revenue is actually rewarded to stakers who vote so we we, te we use all the kind of financial instruments that we can to provide um, to provide a return to people who stick in PyDAO. 
Let's talk about the market more broadly. There are some projects that are experimenting with uh, indexes, but mm. is there anyone who you consider your direct competitor, and how do you differentiate? Yes, yeah, sure. So for a direct competitor, um, I would have said basket down first of all, but we're actually they served a hack recently, and we're actually in the process of acquiring their liquidity, which I believe is an industry first as well. But since that uh, since that doesn't apply anymore, I'd say Index Coop they provide indexes, and then I'd say that the main difference between ourselves at Piedow and Index Coop is they they seem to have adopted a more traditional Web two kind of approach of traditional style ETF indexes. Piedow is a lot more versatile. Piedow, it like like we say we with the Pi Vaults, we mobilize the underlying assets. You know, we're really taking advantage of that malleability of Web3 infrastructure that I talked about before. It means there's a lot more possibility. It means that our products can be far more versatile and ultimately can produce a far greater return than traditional indexes. What are PyDAO's goals for the future and how do you plan to accomplish these goals? Okay, so our kind of broad general goal, our mission, you might say, is to provide automated wealth strategies to as many people as possible. You know, this Web3 is notoriously opaque for people who aren't familiar with almost every aspect. What we want to do at PyDAO is to scale up to a degree that these, these easy-to-interact-with wealth generation strategies are available to everyone. They are easy to understand. We believe that wealth generation shouldn't just be in the hands of a couple of people who spend absolutely all of the time on web3 and in defi etc we want to we want to take this kind of selected in group knowledge and give that to everybody we want to provide everybody with access um the way that we're doing that right now we're just focusing on building the absolute best products the the number one rule of the market is if you don't have a good product then you will fail in the long term you know there's there's so many intangibles with what makes products successful and what doesn't in the short term. But what the ultimate thing that is going to play out is if you have a successful product, if you have a solid use case, then over time that will play out and that will become successful. So right now, we, we believe our products speak for themselves, frankly. Right now, we're just kind of, we're trying to get the name out, get get the product brand everywhere that it possibly can go. And we believe that the... The, the intrinsic value of our products will speak for themselves. Um, the, mo the more people... Pido is one of the rare projects that actually gets spread by word of mouth. Um, so th that's definitely got a, lot, got a lot to do with it, you know. It shows that our products are worthy of being talked about. Um, despite the fact that our DAO is currently quite small, a lot of the people here are like ardently involved in Pido. You know, people get involved and people really really get involved um, and that's the thing that you can't really say about a lot of other DAOs and that's the kind of energy that is a precursor of success in the long term if you look at projects that have really really made it big it's projects that they have a solid use case there's an excited group of people who are really really into it and then over time people pick up on that and the project grows and that's when you see you know 10x's, 100x's. I'm not, I'm not promising anybody 100x, but that's when you see projects really, really take off. So that's something that we try to cultivate with PyDAO for sure. Continuing being a red team, 
can you see any big roadblocks that lie ahead and not related to technical aspects or adoption? Hmm. A big issue with DeFi is the volatility. It's 100% the volatility and the risk. Um, you, when you try to when you try to tell non-crypto people about the benefits of crypto, the number one thing they're, they're going to come back with is, look at this person who lost all of this money. Look at this person who lost all of this money. It's entirely possible that the crypto market will just plunge at any point. So I would say that's probably the biggest roadblock. The way that we plan on getting around that is advancing the risk mitigation techniques. Indexes are probably the best one because it, uh, it, it negates the risk of investing in a single company in a single project. But yeah, it's. I, I think that will be overcome as crypto becomes more widespread. You know, um, I think when you see when you start to see more big names, more institutions come into crypto, then the, then the space will really take off. But at the minute, I think crypto is still in what I like to call its ick phase. You know, it's it's crypto is still very much an in group. Um, so yes, there's there's kind of a almost a stigma around crypto from people who aren't super into it. Over time, this will pass. Like I was saying about scaling pied out, the intrinsic value of the use case will prove successful over time. So what we're focusing on now is just making the good products and then letting time play out. And uh, what do you think about uh, another great roadblock, uh, and I mean regulation? What's your position on the regulatory landscape today? Okay, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, the kind of the big one at the minute is definitely KYC. Um, know your customer. I kind of see a, a schism happening in the future here with places that will adopt KYC infrastructure and keep them to places that won't. Um, I'd say we're definitely not on the KYC and as of about right now. But with regards to the regulatory landscape, I see a lot of DeFi moving. Not all countries will adopt the same kind of regulatory rigor that the, U, that the US, that Europe recently has done and that the UK will do. Um, with regards to that, I see most of DeFi moving to places that are more lenient towards privacy and the just the idea of DeFi and, um, and privacy in general. Um, areas like El Salvador, uh, big swaths of South America, also Portugal. Uh, I see the the kind of strict, you know, KYC uh, regulations that that the UK and the EU is pushing will will just move all of DeFi into areas that are more lenient towards it. So I, d I don't believe you'll be able to kind of you know beat all of DeFi down into a traditional way. I think it'll just move to somewhere that is more allowing of its technical aspects. How do you think is uh, KYC necessary for financial products? Do I think it's necessary? Not personally. No, I can understand why government... I, I fully understand why governments like are in favour of it. I think they do have <laughs> to some degree best interests at heart. But no, personally, I'd, I'd, I think KYC is inefficient. And in our era, I think efficiency is king. 
I, I just think it will be outcompeted by the market, essentially. What are your thoughts about the future for the, the whole uh, for the whole DeFi market? For the whole DeFi market, I think right now we're in a in a phase of how would you say of creativity, of massive creativity. People are really kind of expanding. People are pushing at the borders and thinking, okay, this this is brand new technology. What can we do with this technology? I reckon it will be in that stage for perhaps another year, perhaps another year, and the kind of catalyst for change in this will be the next ETH bull run and kind of wider adoption of cryptocurrency. After that, then I see the kind of massive influx, massive influx of capital into DeFi. I think this space will absolutely boom along with ETH. And at that point, at that point, I believe protocols will die out according to a Pareto distribution. I think most protocols will fail, but the ones that survive will will just become massive, massive financial institutions. So and that's not exactly good news for all protocols, but for the protocols that do succeed, and we are most definitely planning to be one of them, it, it, it's very, very good news. But like I say, I think the earliest for that, that, that kind of change to occur is, is possibly a year. Do you have any thoughts on what would be catalyzer for the next if bull run? Uh, gas fees, scalability. Uh, I'm not sure how much trust you have in the Ethereum Foundation, but if if you believe that they can do a good job, if you could believe that they can solve the scalability issue and build products that are scalable, that will eventually catch on. And if if, if Ethereum can become the de facto kind of base layer for a new economic zeitgeist, then I believe over time people will kind of gravitate towards it and the price of ETH will kind of recognise that fact. But number but will go up. Number Yeah, number will go up, exactly. That's the thing. A, 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 a part about crypto is that anything can kind of happen at any time. You know, you can give all these logical reasons about why you think ETH is going to moon or why you think it's in a recession or anything like that. But the reality of the fact is that it can do anything at any time. You can have the best reasons as to why it's going to go a certain way. And then it can just not do that for arbitrary reasons. You know, it's it, it kind of has a mind of its own. So I can I can give you the, <laughs> the best kind of rationalizations for that. But that that isn't always true. It's not always a rational market, as I'm sure you're aware. Thank you for all these insights. But we'd like to get to know you better. We believe people invest in people, and that's why we ask our guests to spend some time on personal questions. We want to understand your values and how they influence your decisions. And yes, my first question is, uh, when you think of the word successful in crypto and DeFi, who's the first person who comes to mind and why? Satoshi Nakamoto. That's probably a, <laughs> how would you say, a basic answer to that question but I'll elaborate on my philosophy a little bit there so there's a diff the kind of most visceral mm-hmm. image that you get when you think of success is money you know people have made an absolute ton of money in the space uh, that's commendable for sure but that's not really how I judge success I think success in DeFi and in any space is when you have an idea you have a, a revolutionary idea and you work as hard as possible to perfect that and take that idea from out in your head and apply it into the real world, concretize that idea. 
And Satoshi Nakamoto is by far, in a way, the best example of that. He created revolutionary technology. And he wasn't in it for the money at all. He just created it, perfected it, and then left. I think there's a kind of stoic element to that. Um, Heroic, even, you might say. But, yeah, people who do things to progress, people who push the envelope forward and aren't doing it for monetary kind of monetary gain those are the people that i really personally respect both in crypto and in any space uh my next question is uh the question people say peter t loves to ask what is uh, oh something with your microphone uh what is something you believe that other people think is insane Hmm, that's a good question. Hmm. I believe that if you pay really, really close attention to your psyche, it will tell you a lot of things about yourself that you aren't aware of. I also think that there's a a greater link between the kind of psychic, you know, inner world. You might say that that's a very new age way of putting it, but I think there's a much greater interaction between your psychic inner world and the outer world that you experience as a, quote, objective reality um, than people generally like to realise. One good example of this is the Jungian synchronicity. This is something that personally happens to me all the time. Um, Jungian synchronicity is when your kind of psychic state matches up with an event in the real world. So an example might be you you finally crack a great idea and just at that moment the sun comes out from behind a cloud and shines upon you. Stuff like that, I think, if if not objective and scientific, the fact that you recognise it as having an importance and having a meaning gives you some insight into how you should how you ought to be conducting yourself in the world and it teaches you your it teaches you your own values. So Yes, <laughs> I would say that the Greek maxim "Know thyself" is not as corny as it sounds. Uh, what our listeners uh, can read about uh, synchronicity, synchronicity. I'm sorry, uh, because as I remember, Jungian uh, work on it uh, doesn't call synchronicity; it, it, it's called something else. So for anyone interesting, interested in getting involved in Jung's work, um, it's, it's very deep. It's very hard. I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you about that. There's a lot of, it, it really, really requires a kind of shift in the axioms that you take when interpreting reality. Um, so a book recommendation, I would say, is probably <laughs> a book recommendation, I would say, for getting involved in Jung. Is actually not by Jung at all. I'd say it's The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley. That was my personal first intro, um, introduction to kind of a different way of interpreting the world. It's it's the first step away from interpreting the world on purely scientific axioms and towards more, you might say, mystical, but that's a kind of that's an edgy word, uh, phenomenological axioms. Well, Jung and Aldous Huxley, any more book recommendations? Yes, obviously the Bitcoin standard, that's probably the one that I've given to given to people the most as a gift. I think the, the Bitcoin standard is really just a fantastic book. You know, uh, Seth Dean is a fantastic writer. He has a fantastic way of taking these 
kind of abstract concepts, take, taking the code and extracting from that the, the philosophical underpinnings. What does this mean for a society, essentially? I'd say for anybody involved in crypto, if you want to explain the importance of Bitcoin to somebody who doesn't understand it, I'd say the Bitcoin standard is absolutely the book that you would have to give them. Talking about crypto again, uh, crypto landscape is very mosaic, a lot of opposing opinions. What do you consider the worst advice you see or hear in defining crypto? Uh, the worst, the worst advice for crypto is <laughs> oh, uh, probably to get involved in NFTs. <laughs> That might be a more personal opinion, but I just think um, in terms of long term. Game theory, getting involved in NFTs is just—it's just not a good idea. There's because, of course, you might make a lot of money. Um, you see people on t Twitter and various forms of social media departing that they've—you know—people people bought this for X amount of ETH and they've 20x the money in you know such as such a space of time, and that can give a very misleading kind of image of the strategies of wealth generation that actually work in Web3. Um, yes, I'd, I'd say if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> you know, st stick with PyDAO, stick with the things that actually are proven to work across time. So yeah, th this, this isn't me decrying all NFTs, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't use NFTs as a way to pay your bills, for instance. Uh, there is a saying uh, that I kind of like. Uh about difference between being rich and being wealth. Uh, really poor people can have a lot of money, just not for long. <laughs> that's quite good. I like that. Yeah, that's really good. I actually heard rumors that there is a life beyond decentralized finance. Uh, what obsessions do you explore on your free time, if you have any? Do you have any hobby? <laughs> Uh, yes, I do. Um, music has always been a passion for me. I play guitar. I was just getting, just getting more involved in classical guitar and also play the piano. Uh, writing and artwork as well, I'm very interested in. Uh, but I try to delegate a certain amount of time to learning different languages as well. So a, a big part of kind of getting involved in DAO life and in DeFi in general is that There's language barriers there. Not everybody speaks English as they do in real life, for me anyway, living in England. Um, so yes, learning different languages is, is something that I am prioritizing my time towards now. What topic would you speak about if you're asked to give a TED talk on something outside of your main area of expertise? expertise? Hmm. That's a really good question. I'd probably say it will probably be about the philosophy of the self and knowing yourself and breaking away the kind of lies that you tell to yourself and stuff like that and really kind of coming to a more a more complete version of how you view yourself from the first person perspective. Um, th there's a lot of parts to yourself, to everybody, that don't fit into kind of social consensus and a kind of habit that you see with people is that anything that doesn't fit, in, fit into the current social consensus just kind of gets, to use the psychoanalytical, to use the psychoanalytical word, it gets repressed, but it gets ignored, essentially. So, 
I, I'm a big advocate for knowing yourself. There's a quote from Nietzsche that I really like. It says, he who is most free is he who is least afraid in front of himself. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, people come to a lot more, a, a much more mentally stable place when they really go through and kind of unthread all their knots, the knots that get locked up in your psyche. So, yes, it would probably be a, a talk just to ignore thyself over and over again for 20 minutes. That's deep. Everyone who builds in the fire lives at a crazy pace, and it's a challenge in a tad to stay in shape at that pace. The daily routine is very important to stay productive. Do you have any morning rituals? What do the first hour of your day look like? Okay, yeah, sure. So I'm not a morning person at all. That's just, I, I just never have been for whatever reason, whether that's biological or not. So on a morning, I will always dedicate the first hour to doing nothing really productive at all. The first, the first hour is just, okay, it, it's kind of coming from the sleep world back into the real world. There's no point doing work first thing in the morning if it's not going to be good work. So first thing on a morning, get up, have a shower, And then in the second half of that initial hour, I'll, I'll go on Duolingo now, um, learning Spanish, as I said. That's a kind of easy introduction into kind of waking your brain up. I, I, I do, you know, people can start, people can, there's some people that can wake up and just immediately go after super complex problems. That's not me. Like, like you're saying with, um, with knowing yourself, it, it takes me, it takes me about an hour. So yeah, the first, the first hour, the first morning, the first part of the morning routine is always, Just do all the menial stuff you have for have to do for the day. Shower, brush teeth, practice Spanish, easy stuff. And then from that, when you're feeling more refreshed, when you're feeling more awake, that's when you go into like a deep work mode. What would constitute a perfect day for you? A perfect day for me, I would say, do my typical morning routine say four hours deep work focusing on something that I'm really involved in, something revolutionary, something that's got a real sense of weight and import to it. Um after that go outside, exercise is important for me, I believe if your body functions better, your mind subsequently functions better as a result. And after that, go back to work and then on the evening relax with friends, talk about music, philosophy, poetry, whatever. So there's that mix of what what you would call a, a work life balance. That that's pretty much a perfect day for me, yeah. From perfect days, let's talk about perfect places. Is there some place in the world you have visited that you felt really had an impact on who you are today? Yes, the Lake District in the UK. Um for everyone listening you can kind of Google that on Google Images. But the Lake District is It felt, again, to use kind of corny New Age language, kind of ethereal in some way. Um, a lot of the great English poets spent time in the Lake District and going through there on a morning, I really kind of got an idea of why. Um, it's a place where nature feels more vivid, how would you say? I personally have to... I can live in a city for a certain amount of time, but then I always have to go back out into nature to try to kind of refuel Um, let your mind relax and the Lake District is just the perfect perfect it's the epitome of that really it's just a place where there's supreme 
natural beauty in the world. And that's something that's definitely quite important to me. What is the best or most worthwhile investment you have made? And I'm not talking about money necessarily. It could be time, energy or any other resources. Yeah, so the best investment that you can possibly make in yourself is to analyze your own behavior. 100%. It's it's not even close. So you have a kind of set of presupposed axioms that you believe about yourself, things that you believe about yourself. You know, people will ask you and you say, oh, yes, I'm X, I'm Y, I do X, I do Y. But if you don't analyze them, they become faulty over time. There's things that you think that are right about yourself, which just aren't. So analyzing your own values and just coming to a greater, greater, more complete knowledge of, okay, what am I... What am I working on here? Do I really want to be working on this? Is this something that I'm genuinely interested in? Am I following my passions? Am I working to the kind of pace that fits me best? Am I working to like op- optimum capacity? Yes, the invest- <laughs> it sounds very cliche, but the investment that you make in yourself is the investment that's going to pay off the most long term. Other than that, probably Ethereum. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any quote you live your life by or think about often? Yes, for sure. I actually saw this on Twitter a while ago and it's a quote that says You're, you are a winner if you had an interesting life. And I really thought about that a lot, you know, for something that you just kind of find on Twitter one day. I thought the analogy I use is something like this. Imagine a happy and a sad piece of music. Would you rather listen to the happy or the sad piece of music? Most people would probably say happy. But the question isn't that simple. You know, life really isn't that. Life has a lot more intangibles than that. Imagine that the happy piece of music was like elevator music. It's kind of bland, boring. You didn't do anything interesting. But the sad piece of music is something like a Beethoven symphony that really wrenches your guts. It really pushes you to your emotional limit. Which piece of music would you rather listen to? Which piece of music has more value? And you'd have to say it's the Beethoven Symphony, of course, because despite the fact that it's sad, um, in some vague sense of the term, there's more value there. It points at something that... It it changes the most important thing in somebody's life from kind of some abstract notion of happiness, which I've always found to be kind of... How would you say? Frigid, almost. It comes and it goes... It changes that from being the highest value to meaning, to weight. Does your Do your actions have weight? That's what it means to have an interesting life for me. So you have to be willing to kind of forego the notion of being happy all the time to the idea of living a meaningful existence. Next question is related a bit. If you could have one gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it what would it say hmm it would say don't die wondering interesting let's dream a little if a crystal ball could tell you the truth about the future or present or anything else what would you want to know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh wow hmm
I'd like to see if the human race survives in the long term. I'd like to see if the human race can overcome all the kind of all the vicious parts of its nature. I would like to. I, I really have hope that the human race can kind of move past that in in the long term. That it doesn't wipe itself out. That it doesn't kind of fall prey to its own base desires. I, I, I really want. I, I personally have faith in the human race <laughs> as a whole, not necessarily in people individually, but as a whole, I have faith in in people to kind of overcome themselves um, in time. So, yeah. But so you, I, uh, nevertheless, you estimate chances to survive for not as one hundred percent. No, <laughs> no. Um, death is not something that kind of adequately. It's not something that's ever at the forefront of my mind. I, I wouldn't want to know how I die or anything like that because, frankly, I d don't really care. You know, it's it's not something that you control, so it's not something that you should really spend any energy worrying about. Um, yeah, this thing's more important than yourself, you know? Let's assume time travel is possible. What advice would you give to your five years younger self and by extension to our listeners who want to start a journey into DeFi and crypto? Into DeFi and crypto, I would say, or into anything really, I would say learn honestly and work hard at learning. You know, you're only going to get rewarded if you absolutely do things honestly, truthfully, and just work as hard as possible. You know, don't be afraid to say, I don't know much about this. Can you help me? People are g genuinely, people are kind of surprisingly open to things like that. You might get the idea that, oh, people are going to think I'm stupid, blah, 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 blah. But genuinely, people aren't really like that in my experience. If you genuinely ask for help, people will help you, and people will help you in ways that are far, 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 far more helpful than you would ever imagine. You know, so I would say with crypto or with anything, learn as much as you possibly can. Just just find all the resources you can, just devour all the information you can. And a lot of it might be useless, but some information you might build a career out of one day. You know, so I'd say pursue knowledge relentlessly. Some people have lists of crazy things like skydiving, going to Antarctica, going into space. Is there something you've dreamed of doing for a long time? <laughs> it's definitely not skydiving. <laughs> that terrifies me, although that maybe that means that that's the thing that I have to do. Um, yes, there is actually something that I've always wanted to do, and that's traveling. Um, traveling to places that operate on different kind of assumptions, meeting different cultures. I'd love to travel to Asia, I love to travel around South America, places like this, places that are just very different from where you come from, I believe that will give you a more holistic idea of human nature, essentially. So, yes, that's on the bucket list. For what in your life do you feel the most grateful? Hmm. I'd say for my family, definitely. I'd say whatever kind of whatever crap happens in your life, if you have if you have a good family that you can have an honest, like open to discussion relationship with, then that always gives you a fallback. It prevents you from falling too far. It 
it gives you a real a sense that you stood on solid ground you know so I'd say yes to anybody listening spend some time invest some time in improving the relationships that you have in your family thank you and that was my last question and my very last question is uh, do you have any ask or request or advice for our audience some last part in words yes check out Pydow your future financial self will thank you massively well it was short uh, thank you for coming on the show Jonathan thank you very much for having me it was great speaking with you I wish you good luck in all your future endeavors you too thank you very much and thanks to all our listeners as well we hope that you've enjoyed the show we are glad to have you here and wish you all the best in your life and career to stay up to date on our latest episodes please follow us on twitter and discord if you are new to the show we release a new episode every few days for those of you who are regular listeners please share the show with those around you we will be back soon with more insights from expert guests from across the world have a great day See you next time.